0: Welcome, and thank you for joining us in your podcast, brought to you by Choice to Set Groups. Here you can be a fly on the wall to hear some of the personal stories of professional athletes, public figures, and business owners. Relive their life's adversities with them and see how living through their challenges helped them discover their authentic selves, ultimately, creating a life that they couldn't imagine any differently. And now, here is your host, former athlete. Current Certified Financial Planner and Impact Entrepreneur, Tim Liu.
1: Hi, and thanks for joining me once again on the In Your Pod video podcast. There exists a significant disconnect between the average golfing fan watching coverage in their understanding of what it means to be a PGA Tour player. Often those watching the event coverage sees players arriving to the course in courtesy cars, all the new stuff they receive, including customized everything, and being treated like royalty week in and week out. What they often fail to consider when seeing these images is the countless hours, personal sacrifices they made before and even while they're out playing. My guest this week help shine a light on the not-so-glamorous side of professional golf, including the dull reminder of being replaced with thousands of eager candidates. This, of course, in spite of the prospects of experiencing profound and enduring change. If you want to learn the path that one Canadian took to get his shot at a career on the PGA Tour, Mike Liggett has what you're looking for in spades. With that, I hope you enjoy my conversation with PGA Tour player Mike Liggett.
0: This interview has been brought to you by Choice Asset Groups a boutique subscription-based financial planning and asset agnostic management firm built to help high net worth and entrepreneurs build the gap between their money and its meaning. Choice provides an interactive virtual client experience for those seeking world-class financial expertise and sensible advisory fees. To learn more, visit www.choicegroups.ca to book a meeting and begin your journey today.
1: So my guest today comes from Burlington, Ontario. He's currently one of eight Canadians playing on the PGA Tour and at one point in time was actually ranked higher than Tiger Woods in the official world golf ranking system, which is crazy. Both he and I made up two-thirds of a contingent that was responsible for about 40% of the play counts of Cotton Eye Joe while buzzing around Orlando circa 2007. It makes me very happy to welcome you to the In Your Pocket podcast, Mike Gligick. Thanks, Dan.
2: Thanks for having me
1: no problem that actually i'm pretty sure there's another song we used to chuck on too but I, I couldn't remember it so maybe i'll have to reach out to corby and see if he can remember that one
2: there was an akon song it was uh a banger back then oh
1: yeah oh wait just back then uh... oh
2: yeah
1: <laughs> so pga tour member mike ligick like that has to sound amazing like is that starting to sound i guess maybe a little bit normal to you
2: I guess it is, but I don't know, it still kind of gives me the shiver sometimes. Like, uh, I don't know, when you just go about your day-to-day life, like on tour, it almost feels a little bit like any tour. If you're going through pretty similar routines and whatnot, but, you know, the few chances I've had to kind of step back and kind of reflect and think about it, it's, uh, yeah, it's a pretty cool and long journey and, uh, yeah, happy to, you know, get onto the PGA Tour and now we just got to keep working hard to stay out here and hopefully stay out here for a while.
1: So, Mike, you're you're one of the rare people in this world who's lucky enough to live his dream each and every day you wake up. After all of the year, these years of envisioning yourself being a PGA Tour player, tell me, how does the reality of actually being out there stack up against what you thought it might be?
2: I mean, it's pretty cool. Um, obviously, the times are a little different right now with COVID and whatnot. So we haven't, um, you know, maybe my I think it was like the fall of my first year on tour you know, we got to experience some of the big crowds and whatnot, And um, you know, early 2020, you know, since then we haven't had, you know, the massive crowds or, or anything, I guess they're slowly starting to creep back, but um, all the other aspects of, you know, being on tour are still pretty much the same. And uh, yeah, it's pretty, uh, pretty special. And, you know, it makes you want to get up in the morning and work pretty hard to, you know, keep your job. Cause you know, there's a lot of guys that are out there fighting hard every day to, Trying to take my job, so um, just trying to look at it like that and get better every
1: day, kind of thing. Yeah, it's a great lead-in because as much as I really want to pump your tires for like an entire show, this pod's really a resource for people who, I guess, maybe want to hear from those who have walked in the footprints before them. So, as of right now, the Masters isn't too far behind us, where Hideki just cashed in two sheets. Um, For those who tune in to watch golf or maybe follow specific players on social media, I think they build up this perception of like, wow, what a life those guys must live and kind of overlook everything else that comes with the job. So with that said, can you give the audience maybe a Coles Notes version of your path to the tour and maybe what kinds of sacrifices you've had to make in order to get, I guess, here?
2: Yeah, I mean, I could probably sit here and talk for an hour about the whole journey and get into, you know, pretty deep, pretty big details here. But, um, you know, the first 10 years of my career was, you know, not glamorous at all. There was, uh, you know, nothing too exciting going on. And, um, you know, I guess the one thing that people don't really see, too, is it's generally like you're working like seven days a week and pretty long hours when you compare it to someone who's working, you know, a nine to five, Monday to Friday. um, You know, today was, uh, you know, two flights, you know, up at three 52 flights uh, get my car go to get tested for COVID. Now I'm waiting two hours and then I'm going to go play nine holes and uh, stretch and, chip and pot and practice a bit so you know just as like a Monday example it's you know a pretty long day and whatnot and then Tuesday's a pretty big practice day Wednesday and, and we get into the tournament Thursday through Sunday so you know all week there's no time to really pick feet up uh, you know maybe a little bit at night but that's about it and um, yeah I guess you know the first 10 years or so you know people think professional golfer and they think private jets and Lamborghinis and stuff, and, uh, you know, I don't think that's, you know, really a true, you know, representation of most professional golfers. You know, you might have a few of the guys, the Tiger Woodses and the Phil Mickelson's and Dustin Johnson's, um, whose bank accounts look quite healthy, but, um, you know, for the most part, and, you know, even guys on the PGA Tour um, that are maybe rookies or only been out for one or two years, you know, it's still, you know, we're not – going and staying in $500 hotels or, you know, buying massive houses and cars kind of thing. It's, um, you know, we're still got a lot to achieve and a lot of work to be done to, uh, you know, get, you know, reach those goals that we've kind of set out. So um, there's a lot to it. And, you know, I don't think the general public really sees that. They just kind of see what's on TV Monday or sorry, Thursday through Sunday and, you know, see what the winner's check looks like and, that's about it, I think, but there's, yeah, a lot, a lot to it and a lot that goes on behind the scenes.
1: Yeah. These are some of the types of adversities that I, I was hoping that you'd mention. I, I want to revisit a specific conversation that you and I had about, I think maybe seven years ago. It, it was just before you started your year down in Bermuda and, and in not so many words, you were basically contemplating putting a hard stop on your career. And if I remember correctly, you felt as if you were kind of caught in a vacuum where for all intents and purposes and no disrespect whatsoever, but you were having the same results, you know, year after year. And that's something that's certainly not unique to you. Can you paint a better picture for, I guess, the listeners to understand this part of your journey and and telling them how you felt at that time?
2: Yeah. I mean, there was many times in my career where I, I, probably thought of hanging it up or kind of hung it up a cool story i'll try and say it in 30 seconds here but it was back in 2011 um as you know and maybe the listeners don't know i didn't go to college so i turned pro pretty young and i just kind of said to myself i wanted to play a sport growing up and you know i ended up with golf and i wanted to give a sport a really good hard fair go and um I gave it a go for a few years and, you know, I was like an 18, 19, 21 year old, didn't really have much money, not much sponsorship. So after a few years, I was like, you know what, I'm not really doing a whole lot. I think it's maybe time to hang it up. That was 2011 and my family was in real estate. So I went and started to do all my real estate courses. That was kind of my my backup plan. And I was about to do my third real estate course. and It was like April, courses were opening and I just, you know, hadn't touched a club all winter and my friends wanted me to go out and you know, just play a casual round of golf. I'm now, you know, back in school, essentially trying to become a real estate agent. And I think my first round out after not touching a club was like 65. And then like the next, you know, a few days later, I went out and shot like 64 or 65 or something like that. And I just kept piling on these crazy low scores. And because I still had status on the Canadian tour, my friends were all like, oh, you got to go like one more year, one more year just a couple more events. And I think I maybe had like $3,000 to my name. So I ended up saying, okay, I'm going to go play the first swing of events. I think it went like Edmonton, Calgary, Winnipeg or something like that. And went out to the first event of the year and won. And that just kind of jump started the whole thing Then I won, whatever it was, 35,000 bucks. I had money in my pocket. And here we go again for round two of this playing career. The real estate got put on hold and whatnot. So that's uh one story I always think of, but and it's not that I wanted to think about quitting or, or whatnot. I was just kind of like a realist. And I was like, you know what, I'm not going to, I don't want to be like a 40-year-old trying to get on the PGA Tour and i have had not much success. I was like, you know, I only got one life to live. I want to be a golfer, but I'm going to give it all I got for, I didn't really put a timeline on it until I felt like the time was up and then I'd move on and do something else. And I'd be perfectly fine with that because I gave it 110%. And if I didn't make it, I didn't make it. I know it's, you know, there's only so many cards on the PGA Tour, and I kind of accepted that in the back of my brain. The one thing that's tough, though, is when you have success at some of the other levels, you know, like on the McKenzie Tour or the Canadian Tour, you know, I finished 11th on the money list, 11th, 10th, 9th, like 13th or something. So it's not like I was losing my card and stuff. I was right there competing and doing well. And the interesting thing about golf too is, when you tee it up like this week, anyone can win. Literally, anyone in the field can win. When you go to a tennis match, that's why you see the same four guys: Djokovic, you know, Nadal, Federer, Andy Murray, or like there's like the handful of them. One of them is going to win. And it's not like that in golf. You know, there's always guys moving up and down tours, and everything just. You know, it's like it's all about riding the wave kind of and riding it while it's hot and kind of holding on if it's not going well. So I kind of knew in the back of my head that, you know, a good wave was going to come soon and I was just kind of waiting for it and, you know, eventually caught one uh, kind of, you know, later on in my career. But, um, you know, not everyone's, you know, Jordan Spieth and Colin Moore and Cow and, Matt Wolf and stuff, um, there's a lot of, a lot of different ways to get to the tour. And, you know, there's the journeyman and then there's the guys that kind of break out from college and, you know, I just happen to be the journeyman.
1: Let's also keep in mind that you, you're not that 40 year old that just got your, your tour card. I mean, you're much <laughs> younger than that. So <laughs> maybe journeyman with a heavy asterisk there, um, I
2: guess, cause I didn't go to college and turn pro pretty young. I feel like more of a journeyman, I guess, but
1: Yeah. It's Okay, so on the college note, I, I wanted, wanted to maybe cover this. So halfway through, I guess, my freshman year of college, I, I think I slowly began realizing the value of being surrounded by quality people. And as a pro, I can only imagine the, I guess, the psychological roller coaster that you were basically living day in and day out of having to deal with not only your own expectations on your own career, but also having the expectation of those around you making it to the level that you have doesn't happen on your own so tell me who who were your outlets to go to when i think things got really hard through um i guess some of those years
2: i mean i i think one of the most important things especially in our game i'm sure every game too but especially in golf is just to surround yourself with you know a really strong good team like you kind of mentioned and um i'm sure you know most of my guys but you know i've been around Sean Foley for 18 years now, Corby for about the same 18 years. Obviously, he was a friend of mine and a player at first, and now he's more on board as like a coach. And Gareth rafluski has been on board for over 10 years, Paul Doolin for over 10 years. So had, um, you know, the same kind of group of guys. And, um, you know, we've all just kind of worked hard and we all kind of have the same goal. So it's, um, it's pretty good to kind of watch each other Grow as well, you know, sitting back and watching Sean Foley become Sean Foley is pretty cool. When you know, thinking back 18 years ago, I was a 13 year old kid that walked into Glen Abbey and he had he was like 24 and just out of college and didn't even have one student, never mind you know, Tiger Woods and Justin Rose. So, um, it was you know, it's pretty cool. Obviously, Gareth Rafluski having a lot of success, uh, mostly on the LPGA tour. It seems like he teaches half the tour out there, so it's pretty uh, exciting to you know, follow him and, you know, I'm sure they kind of feel the same, you know, about me. It's um, you know, we're kind of one big family. It all works hard and pushes each other and uh, yeah, it's been good.
1: I guess maybe on that note too, for, for a long time, Mike, I I thought you've been kind of somewhat a victim of not getting the bounces you probably deserve. And in 2019, well, obviously you finally got some of those to go your way and you had a breakout year. After that season on the Corn Ferry Tour, things seemed as though they, I guess they happened quickly because next thing I knew you're cheesing on TV in Portland getting your tour card. Looking back now, would you say that Mike Liggett, the mini tour player, needed to go through that rough patch in order to become Mike Liggett, the PGA Tour player?
2: I think so. Like looking back on it too, if you put me, I mean, everyone's different. I, I get so impressed by these guys like the Morikawa's and the Speece that just break out onto the PGA Tour and just like win. Because looking back on it, like I was kind of like a nervy kid a little bit deep down. If I got uncomfortable situations on the golf course, you know, or playing in front of a lot of people or whatever, I kind of felt it more than probably Speece or any of those guys do. So, if you were to plot me as like, you know, that 21 year old kid all of a sudden in contention somehow on the PGA tour, I don't think I would have handled it nearly as well as a lot of these kids do. So, I think for me, the whole process has been great just because I've slowly climbed the ranks and, um, you know, started to play on bigger and better tours kind of each year. I've never really, you know, gone backwards. I've always kind of just, slowly but been moving up from you know the mini tours to Mackenzie tour to the corn Ferry tour and now to the pga tour so we've always just kind of been climbing and i think um you know spending a couple years on each tour is just kind of been you know good for me and you know, hopefully i can spend lots of years on the pga tour but um i think all those years have been yeah extremely beneficial and you kind of learn a lot on each each level that you you know kind of progress to and i think um, all those tours and events have kind of helped me get to the PGA Tour.
1: Okay. Let's go back to that day, I guess, in Portland there. Locking up your card before the end of the season is definitely one thing. I, well, I guess I should say maybe one thing, uh, which had to be amazing in itself, playing free for you know at least a portion of the year. But there can't be anything like actually getting your card. So can we relive that, I guess, the night with you? Like, What do you remember from that?
2: Um, I mean, I remember, obviously, it it was a nice feeling. I think we locked up our card in Colorado, which was maybe like six events prior to the Tour Championship, which obviously was a nice feeling. We could just kind of, you know, we were still playing for a lot. Um, Every spot on the list uh, is very meaningful, so we were still playing for a lot, but at the end of the day, we knew we were going to be on the PGA Tour the next year. So that was kind of a bit of a relief. Um, you know, that week in Portland, um, you know, my wife came out. It was more of a, f- a fun week, I guess. We were still there trying to win the golf tournament. It didn't play too well. But um, I think, you know, once I finished up on Friday and missed the cut, um, you know, it was a bit of a party, I guess, for a couple of days because – you know, one, it was, uh, you know, 12 or maybe 11, uh, 10, 11, 12 year journey to try and get this PGA Tour card. And that was kind of the, you know, the weekend that was happening. And um, it was also, you know, a bit of a celebration too, because after, after that, the PGA Tour pretty much started up right away. So there wasn't right. really any other time to celebrate. It was, um, I think we had four days off between the... Tour championship ended on a Monday on the corn Ferry tour. And then all the rookies had to be in uh, at the green briar for Friday for two days of rookie orientation. So we had four days off. So, you know, we um, kind of enjoyed that weekend and it was pretty fun to be there on Sunday at, uh, you know, Pumpkin Ridge and walking across the green to get your first PJ Tour card. So something I'll never forget. And. You know, hopefully, I never have to go back there and walk across that green again. And I can, you know, keep playing well and working hard and just stay up here. But yeah, it, uh, it's a pretty good feeling. And you know, I got a lot of good friends actually that are looking pretty good to get their tour cards this year on the Corn Ferry Tour. So uh, pretty nice and happy for them. And uh, you know, look forward to tuning in and watching them on uh, TV when they get their cards.
1: Going back to the rookie camp here, can you just can you give us a little bit of an idea as to what that actually is—the the orientation part?
2: Um, it was just like two days worth of meetings. I think everyone kind of went in um, Friday. I think everyone had to fly in Friday, and there was like a couple-hour meeting Friday night, and then all day Saturday. Pretty much just going over everything and anything you could possibly think of that had to do with the PGA Tour, whether it be health benefits, courtesy cars, getting to the events, traveling to the events, pretty much don't drop F-bombs on TV. It'll cost you a lot of money and um, don't get caught breaking clubs on TV. It'll cost you money and, I don't know, just a bunch bunch of things that, you know, no one would really think of, but, you know, retirement plans and, I don't know. Okay. It was a lot of stuff, but it was pretty informative. But uh, but yeah, I wish we would have got a little more than four days off.
1: I think this tour creates, I guess, this illusion where they showcase a product and it, it's often those who are playing their best that week, which leaves some people to think that, I don't know, golf is easy. <laughs> maybe they too can maybe give a playing career a go. Um, where I'm going with this is that... With most things, usually if you work hard enough and for long enough, results follow. But with golf, it's not necessarily the case. I know the path to status is different now, but if you could go back to n- and talk to your 19-year-old self, like, what advice would you give in order to maybe help get you here faster, if that's even possible?
2: Hmm. I guess not that it's like a huge regret of mine. I wish I took fitness a little more, um, intense, I guess. That's one thing I, I struggle with a little bit. I'm not one to go and pump it out in the gym. I just, I don't like it. I don't really enjoy it. I do do some stuff, but you won't catch me in there with Bryson, you know, lifting (laughs) every weight in the gym. Um, I wish I was more into that. I think, I don't know if that's something you can kind of learn, but, um, you know, if I was, if I could tell my 19 year old self, something it would be to learn how to hit the ball far. Cause you know, the game has definitely gotten long and, um, length has proven to, you know, lead to success. If you look at all the guys, you know, in the top 10 in the world or whatever, they're pretty much all bombers. So, um, you know, maybe back when I first turned pro it wasn't really the case. Hitting it long was, you know, it was nice and it was cool, but you know, now it's kind of proven with stats and everything to really make uh really make a difference. And um I think if I was a little bit more into the gym at a younger age, it could have been beneficial. I mean I'm still above average driving distance, but you know, everyone wants to hit it like Bryson now. It's uh the year we're in, so um
1: yeah, it's yeah. pretty impressive what he's doing there.
2: Very impressive, yeah.
1: Let's take a different angle here. Hockey parents, especially those in the GTA, I think have made a, a maybe a not-so-flattering name for themselves around the ranks. I don't think that that's unique to hockey, and you might agree with me, living through various tour lives growing up, but... It seems as though the loudest stories, at least that I can register, come from the people or parents who who can't draw a distinction between a casual and competitive round. In varying capacities, we both know the differences between each level of tournament golf. So for the parents out there listening who maybe want their kid to succeed, but they struggle with staying out of the way, what nuggets may, like might you have to offer them in order to help keep them keeps well, I guess keep the game fun for the kids and not stunting their development as players?
2: Yeah, I think the one thing is just to keep it fun. Um, you know, growing up and looking back, you know, I got a lot of juniors in my head. I mean, we played some golf together at a young age. There's probably a lot of parents that, you know, stick out right away and in your head that, you know, were super, super intense. And, you know, none of those kids really really made it Um, you know my parents um, you know I was pretty fortunate in the sense that they knew that I wanted to play a sport and I didn't I didn't even really care what sport it was I just wanted to be an athlete that's what I played so many sports growing up I loved the competitive aspect of all the sports and um, you know they never pushed anything on me they just you know. nice enough to drive me to the rink or the baseball diamond or the golf course and drop me off and pick me up later on. And, um, you know, I would go out and play the occasional round with my dad and go to the range and whatnot, but that was the extent of it. Like my dad never, you know, maybe when I was really, really young, but my dad never tried to teach me, coach me, guide me in any direction. He kind of stayed out of it. Um, you know, I'm pretty fortunate for that. Um, you know, sometimes parents can, you know, they're trying to help. It's not like these parents are not trying to help, but I think they're just not doing it the right way. Um, you know, if I'm a parent one day and, you know, my kids are into sports, I'd probably just want to hire, you know, a good coach. Uh, you know, we got fortunate walking into Glen Abbey and Sean Foley happening the first one we saw, but, um, hire a good coach and you know kind of let them take over they're the experts and you know they'll do a good job guiding your kid in the right direction
1: yeah maybe sometimes less is more right
2: mm-hmm. absolutely
1: there's a saying that rising tide floats all ships and there's no denying that the canadian contingent on tour has been growing over the years you being a contributor to this what do you think is driving the i guess the growing number of canadians playing ncaa and, and pro golf
2: I'm not sure. Um, I mean, Golf Canada does a pretty good job with their development, their amateur program, their pro program. Um, you know, I think only about half the guys on tour actually went through that program. I didn't, Sloan didn't, Adwin, I'm sure someone else. Um, but I don't know. It's been a pretty good b- batch there, from, you know, between Corey, Mack, Pendy, um, you know, a bunch of guys. So, I think next year we're going to be adding at least two guys to the PGA Tour. So hopefully, you know, the rest of us on tour can keep playing well and keep our cards and maybe we'll add to it. Because, yeah, I think this year might have been a record and yeah, hopefully we can add to it. But I'm not too sure what the recipe is. But, um, you know, I'm not going to go trying to figure it out. Let's just hope everyone keeps doing what they're doing. And, uh, yeah, we'll see more Canadian flags out there.
1: All right. So enough about your job. I want the listeners to get a sense for who you are away from the course. You share some things in common with Jordan Spieth and Ernie Els, having someone in your family affected by autism. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and, you know, maybe what you're looking to accomplish using the platform that you have available to you?
2: Yeah. Um, you know, my brother has pretty severe autism. He's nonverbal and 28 years old now. Um, it's something that's always obviously been close to me and my family and something I've always wanted to try and give back to. Obviously it's tough when you're staying in days in and, you know, living with, you know, no money in your bank account, playing the mini tours. But, you know, now that, you know, we've gotten to the PGA tour and got a little bit of a platform, I guess, um, trying to use that to the best I can and uh, try and help out and give back any way I can. So, you know, for now, um, we're trying to do a little bit with Els for Autism. Um, you know, hope my you know, long-term goal is to keep playing well and, you know, get a couple, you know, get another year or two on tour and better established and then maybe start our own foundation. But, um, you know, for now, we're trying to, you know, tag on to Ernie Els and his foundation. They do an unbelievable job. They're actually located down in my neck of the woods in Florida now. Um, like Palm Beach Gardens, Jupiter area. So, I'm actually supposed to be going out to their facility pretty soon, and um, you know they got a little golf portion um, at their facility too. I think they maybe have like three holes that some some of the kids go out and play on and whatnot. So, it's pretty cool, and you know I'm hoping that I can get out there and you know maybe help the kids out on the golf course. And um, obviously, any chance I get, uh, you know I occasionally do like the the birdies and eagles you know, whatever it is, $20 birdies and $50 eagles or something like that, um, where I'll try and get some people on board to, you know, match it or kind of donate what they can and um, go out and kind of have fun and try and make lots of birdies and raise some money. So, um, yeah, we're doing a few things and, you know, I'm just hoping to keep that going and keep growing that, you know, one day, you know, hopefully pretty soon down the road, we'll be able to do something ourselves. But yeah, for the meantime, uh, yeah, Jordan Spieth does a great job with his foundation and, Uh, Yeah, Ernie Els with Els for Autism is one that I've just kind of gravitated to mostly because it's uh, down in the South Florida area. So, yeah.
1: Speaking about matching, I know that you've partnered with the Whistlebear Golf Club in order to bring to life the Galegic Sponsored Athlete Program. This is something that you have to be so proud of in bringing to life. Can you bring the listeners up to speed with what this actually is?
2: Um, Yeah, so a bunch of, you know, Myself and a couple partners um, got together and we wanted to try and give like a golf package essentially to a junior golfer that, you know, kind of needs it. And, um, you know, this year was a perfect year, year to start because, you know, a lot of families are struggling and kids are struggling and whatnot. So um, essentially, you know, we got a whistlebear junior membership with um, they have an amazing junior elite program there with, tons and tons of kids with great instruction um kind of reminds me of you know when we used to go to Glen Abbey and they had their junior elite program there with Foley and O'Shea and all those guys so um, the the junior gets the, the membership the all the coaching for the year uh full bag of all fitted clubs um level wear clothing package and whatnot so we got um you know, it was going out all over the radio and social media and whatnot and we got tons of applications and you know, I was fortunate to pick uh, you know, a good kid not too long ago and pretty cool to you know, that was my first time, I think myself actually like really like giving back and like making like a big difference in someone's life. And it was uh it's a pretty cool like, you know, FaceTime or Zoom call to to make um you know the kid and the family were obviously thrilled and yeah it was pretty cool to be a part
1: of that yeah that's sweetie yug legs that's uh that's a big boy move right there that's for sure Um, embracing my new roots in guelph here and being a dog lover myself i'd be remiss if i didn't ask about your wife natasha's business venture i saw that she put you to work pretty good there recently but um was your agent actually able to get you an equity stake in the company just you know ask it
2: (laughs) i wish no, but yeah, Natasha, my wife, um, I think she's been at it for, I think it's over six years now. Um, so she has a small business that she's been working on. Uh, it's called Walk in the Bark, and she makes pet accessories. So anything, collars, leashes, bandanas, harnesses, uh, poop bag holders, you name it. She, she can make anything pretty much custom or whatever. So um, she's got a pretty big following on social media. She knows how to do the social media game. 20 times better than I do. I pretty much give her the phone to make my posts. So I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> and uh, yeah, she's a whiz at it and she's got a big following. So she, you know, gets a lot of her sales from online, but she's also, um, you know, working on the wholesale side of things too. And she's gotten into a bunch of like smaller boutique stores and whatnot. And uh, yeah, she's done a great job and worked hard. And it's pretty cool to kind of see her business develop from, you know, it all started because we ordered a, we, got our dog whatever six seven years ago and we ordered him his first collar online and it broke and she kind of looked at it and was like man I feel like I could make this she's always kind of been artsy you know crafty kind of girl and uh, she borrowed her grandma's sewing machine and used like a pillowcase and ordered a buckle and sure enough she made like this sweet collar so she was like I'm gonna order some fabric and make like a good looking one and next thing you know all our friends and family wanted it and then they were like oh why don't you like put it for sale online and just make an Instagram account. Next thing you know, she's got whatever, 40 or 50,000 followers and this, you know, huge following online. And, you know, it started as just something for fun and she ended up having to, she had a couple jobs back then and she ended up quitting one job and then had to quit the next job. And that's, you know, full-time gig. And, you know, if there's one person that works harder in the world than me, it's might even be her. She puts in a lot of long hours and, Like you kind of mentioned, uh, you know, there's a few times where she kind of hints at it. Like, uh, would you mind helping me a little bit? So, there was a few times there. I think it was just before Christmas, and um, you know, COVID was going on and whatnot. So she was swamped, and you know, I dedicated a couple hours uh, every day, and yeah, we kind of tag teamed it. It was fun
1: here's hoping for the uh at least for the rest of the year here you don't have any any time to give her on the weekends Uh, (laughs) but as we wrap up here mike is there is there anything else you want to kind of i guess impress upon the people who are who are listening at least maybe still be with us at this point um actually walk in the bark uh, how can people find uh i guess natasha's business online there
2: yeah just um on any of the social media platforms i think instagram's the one she uses the most just at walk in the bark and then um walkinthebark.ca or on Etsy. that's about the extent of my uh, tech knowledge (laughs) fair fair all right I'll I'll be
1: sure to include it in the uh, show notes here but um, Mike thanks so much for uh, giving me a little bit of your time today I know that um, kind of sucks being in limbo here uh, waiting I guess to head out to the course but I wish you all the luck in the world. And again, I seriously wish, I hope that you don't have any time to give Natasha for the rest of the year here.
2: Yeah, I hope so too.
0: This episode of In Your Pocket has been made possible by the generous support of Choice Asset Groups and friends of the show. For more information about our guests, as well as how to partner with the podcast or be featured in future, please visit the show notes. Until next time, we wish you luck in your own journey and recognizing the things that matter to you.
1: And there you have it. Mike was good enough to give us a little bit of his time before he started his tournament week. I hope that by sharing his journey, the average fan now recognizes that the lives of most of these golfers who we see on TV are living fairly normal lives, considering, I guess, the magnitude of the tournament persons that they're competing for. This in addition to the fact that the path for success on the PGA Tour comes in many different forms, ranging from the generational talents to one which Mike likened to his own situation being that of a self-proclaimed journeyman. Mike is a testament to those having high aspirations that professional success can be attainable given the right amount of skill, work ethic, and good fortune, of course. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. And until next time, thanks again for joining me and talking about the things that matter.